Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Australian entertainer and keynote speaker Daryl Lugrove sets out to inspire and motivate people with his refreshingly unique way of presenting. Daryl's background is one of singing and the stage. He was in the original cast of Australia's Les Miserables, one of my favourite shows of all time, performed in the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber and received critical acclaim for his role in Jesus Christ Superstar. His love for opera left him inspired by the operatic sensation The Three Tenors and he went on to become the co-creator of what became the global phenomenon The Three Waiters. You may well be familiar with this act as it became one of the most performed corporate acts in the world, being performed to over 3 million people in over 70 countries. He now incorporates operatic performances into his presentations, during which he aims to send out a powerful message about how to succeed in business. And he is somebody, not only have I been trying to track down for some time, because we do go back a long way, but he is one of the nicest... um, and most talented, without question, individuals I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast, Mr. Daryl Lovegrove, no less. Hi, everybody. And hi, Sandro. It's um, uh, really, really, I'm wrapped to be asked to be part of uh, this um, chat today. Looking forward to it. And hi to all your listeners. And all the way from Sydney, Australia. Wow, what can I say? Uh, Modern... (laughs) Technology, modern technology. So we do go back a long way. I think six, well, seven years, Daryl, since we started working together on a, uh, on a, on a, we'll call it production because it really is a production. But the Million Dollar Roundtable back in 2014 in Toronto, where you absolutely blew everyone away with your performance, and they still talk about you even today. So um, it's amazing to have you on on the Sandro Forte podcast. So let's go back because before we we went uh, live today. We, we had a little chat, didn't we, about um, some of the, the challenges, would be fair to say, you're facing right now. And that's really uh, understating it somewhat, um, but not just currently, but, you know, throughout your career. So let's start in the most obvious place, you know, the beginning. Uh, tell us about the Daryl Lovegrove, growing up as a boy, where it all happened and, and kind of what led you to this amazingly successful career. Okay, it, it's uh, been uh, very much a, a journey of not knowing what's around the corner and having to sort of uh, get my head around the new challenges all the time. I, I was born in uh, Auckland, New Zealand. I'm a Kiwi, actually, originally. And uh, when I was seven months old, I was um, taken to Malawi, Central uh, uh, Africa, um, and was there for about uh, two and a half years before Dad got a job working for the UN in Geneva. I was there for about two and a half years. My brother was born in Geneva. And then mum and dad split up when I was about five or six years old. And um, I went back to New Zealand to live with my brother and my mum. And dad started a 10-year uh, lectureship, a law lectureship at Hong Kong University. And so I would go to Hong Kong 
sort of twice a year for a number of years. And so it was a fantastic upbringing, you know, a little bit of Africa as a little um, one, two-year-old, uh, then a three, four, five-year-old as a little Geneva boy, and then um, having the, the taste of Asia um, going through Hong Kong. And I um, went to boarding school for about eight years in, in New Zealand, and then I got the big break in when I was about 21. Um, I managed to get into, as you say, I got as a Les Miserables and uh, joined the um, original Australian cast. They, they'd already done a year, and I was uh, I replaced one of uh, the uh, actors who was leaving, and uh, was only supposed to be there for that show, and then I was going to go back. But I fell in love with Australia and realised that um, Australia was going to be uh, a lot more opportunities for me in Australia than there was. New Zealand. And I got into chess and I won the Australian competition. And um, of course, as you say, I got the role of Jesus in, in Jesus Christ Superstar. And uh, it was an amazing 14 month tour. Um, but the three waiters, I guess, I, I mean, I'm known as, uh, I suppose, in those days, I was very much known as a leading man in, in the musical theatre world. Um, and then the three waiters is a story of an accident. Sandra, I have to tell you, it was put together as a bit of a joke by um, a mate of mine, a guy by the name of Mark Bradley. And we put it together uh, where we dressed up three opera singers and we, we were the original two of the three. Uh, and we dressed up as waiters at a, at a function and uh, we kind of walked around uh, with the accents and fooling everybody that we were waiters. And by the time the main meal goes down, we took over with a very funny, interactive three tenors style show. And those of you who remember the three tenors, they were the biggest kind of uh, thing in the 90s. And if it wasn't for the three tenors, there wouldn't have been a three waiters. The three tenors just had completely uh, created the new what we call crossover pop opera genre in the 90s. And uh, by the end of the 90s, they were still touring the world and it was uh, they were absolutely massive. And that was the cultural identity that we, we related our show too. That's why it had such good synergy because people see, see us there dressed up as waiters and they're doing, oh, they're like the three tenors, you know. And, uh, of course, it was, a um, you know, it was a lot of fun and, and we, we put the show together thinking, you know, a few laughs and, and, and a few arias and, and, you know, it should last two or three years and we'll have a bit of fun. Well, of course, the thing absolutely exploded in our faces. We, we just couldn't believe the, the pace of the wildfire that happened after the first few shows, you know, we going from one or two, three shows and we started off to quickly to 30 to quickly to 100. And and um, by the time we got to about 300 in the space of about two years, we had a lot of people from overseas coming to Australia and having international conferences. And we'd be running out the door with uh, uh, to another standing ovation. We'd have these guys running after us in suits going, stop, 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 guys, guys. Oh, my God, that show in there you just did, unbelievable. We haven't seen anything like it before. You have to bring it to the UK because we've got nothing like this back home. And they'll like, and we had people from the United States and all that sort of stuff as well. And, uh, and, and we sort of thought, wow, maybe they're, you know, we didn't think of it. We didn't think of life for our baby outside of the Asia Pacific region where we'd been predominantly been performing. In 2000, we took it to the UK. And uh, in 2001, we took it to the United States. And um, this, they say that the rest is history. And to date, we've actually now, the, the show has performed uh, over, been performed over 14,000 times and it's been seen in 90 countries. So it's a, and it's, it's a phenomenon. There's, there's daylight between us and the next. We, we're by far the, the most booked, most successful corporate entertainment act 
in the world. And it was just a simple idea that we put together. We had no idea of, of the success it was going to happen. And, and, uh, and it blew up. And then, well, after 11 years of that, um, I sold out in 2009. It's about 11 years ago now. Uh, and uh, I developed my own company here in Australia called Lovegrove Productions or Lovegrove Entertainment. And um, I developed a whole lot of new shows and uh, put them together. And so I offer acts, um, operatic acts, and musical theatre acts, and Gadsby acts, uh, uh, the Motown kind of acts, uh, and I offer it to the corporate entertainment world, the world of special events. You know, we put on gala dinners and charity nights and awards nights and, and even wedding receptions and things like that, where people are getting together for a good time at a dinner. That's the ideal setting for the kind of acts that I produce. And that's taken me through current day. And um, as you know, Sandra, when, when we met up with the Million Dollar Roundtable, I had um, been speaking about it. People wanted to know my story. And, uh, and I was delighted to be invited to uh, speak at that particular um, uh, conference in Toronto and I've spoken to quite a few since then and it's taken me around the place and and um, the, the the story is is um, you know keeps evolving every year and it's not a story of continued success it's a story actually now especially when out with COVID of surviving tremendous obstacles along the way um, as an entertainment producer uh, finding a market shattered from time to time and other times the market's fantastic it's just been a big roller coaster been very interesting never a dull moment <laughs> and that's kind of my story to date wow that is that is quite a story i'm, I'm going to try and pick that apart now from memory and and at my age daryl it's starting to go a bit so let me do my best um first of all i'm i'm intrigued to know because le miserable is is probably my favorite ever musical so um just indulge me for a second. Were you Javert or Jean Valjean? You couldn't no, have been a Marius. I was understudying Marius. Oh, were you? Okay. Yes, right. yes. Uh, I was understudying Marius and, and I got to play it a few times and it's a wonderful role. And yeah, I was good looking. I had a bit more hair in, the, in those days. I'm much better looking than I am now. Empty, and so I got away. Empty chairs at empty tables is one of the all-time greats, right? Oh, yeah. Big song. Big song. Um, okay. <laughs> And then you, um, we'll, we'll come back to, to uh, talk a little bit about um, some of those challenges that you touched on. You, you know, traveling with th this uh, amazing show as you've done to all these different places and growing up as a Kiwi, didn't know that. That's, that's the first time I, I heard about that. Uh, and, and Africa and Asia. What does travel teach you? You know, have you learned much from travel, different cultures, communities, ways of life? Do you think that gives you a perspective of who you are, where you've come from, where you're going? You know, what would you say to people who are kind of thinking about traveling and the benefits of it? What's it what's it taught you? It's it's been the best thing that I've ever done. That's ever happened to me. I mean, especially in the first formative years, they say the first seven years of your life, are the most important. And you can imagine growing up as a little, you know, toddler, uh, one, two and three year old. And when we'd go into the villages or all the all the all the uh, locals would come up. To, I had the whitest hair, the white, white, blonde, blonde hair, like, you know, like Boris Johnson's hair it was just so white. And of course, they all want to come up and touch me and, and feel the hair and the whole thing. Well, I thought I was a little prince, apparently. My parents would tell me and, you know, I'd sit up, go, right, you can touch my hair now kind of thing as I'd be stroll around the, the local markets. And 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 um, and to and I had a, obviously an African 
we had a cook, we had a servant. Gertrude was my was my nanny, um, and uh, we lived that colonial life. You know that that working for a government kind of colonial life. And um, and then later in Switzerland, I, I I remember starting school as a four year old and and in a room full of French speaking kids. And I of course I didn't know a word. And I had a teacher who didn't wasn't very sympathetic about that. Used to grab my ear a lot. Dachil, dachil. But but it made me learn French pretty quickly, and you know and and get an uh, idea of the, that European kind of uh, culture and but going going to Hong Kong twice a year from sort of the age of 10 to 16 um, and having a a Chinese stepmother um, who you know totally uh, um, you know allowed my brother and I to to uh, be involved with the the her family and an experience the Asian um, lifestyle was phenomenal. And so you can imagine, you know, by the time of 16, I, I'm pretty worldly and, um, and I just have absolutely no tolerance at the time uh, for, you know, apartheid and, 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 and the whole idea of the Mandela and everything and the, the, the struggles of the world. I seem to empathize with them a lot more than my schoolmates did who didn't know really what was going on but I've, I've been to a lot of these places and I grow up and and, I, and I've, I've been with my family were incredibly political minded and um and that they they were just so one has huge wonderlust and which I was able to benefit from and um I'd seen a lot of the world and I just sort of it, I, it's never scared me it's just fascinated me and I've always loved getting on a plane and taking off and I've been to, to a tremendous amount of countries and um and, and states within those countries and, and territories so um it's been the best thing when, when I went overseas to launch the waiters for instance in England and 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 uh, the waiters in America it was just so easy for me I think to to meet up with people and create meetings and just just re- feel relaxed with them and they relaxed with me because I'm not sitting there going, ooh, I'm an Aussie out of my depth here in a strange country. You know, I just, I've always felt really good wherever I go and, and I think that's because of travel. Mm. Uh, earlier on you were talking about the three waiters. Uh, which which role did you perform in the three waiters, Daryl? Because you very brilliantly executed a British accent earlier when you said, oh, my God. And then you went on, and then you went on later in the sentence. It's worth listening to again if you want to rewind this and listen to the impersonation of a, of a British person. Uh, and then you kind of went north with a kind of slightly northern accent at the end of the sen- uh, sentence. So I'm intrigued to know, were, the, were you the Italian were you the Frenchman? Were you the English waiter? Which role did you play? I was the original Italian, but I played the French. I, I did about 900 shows, I, and probably 500 were the Italian, uh, 300 were the Frenchman, and um, that leaves about 200 for the third waiter, which was always the local. And so if I was doing a show and you know, in, in London one night, you know, I'd come out at the end of it, but he'd come out at sort of halfway through the show. You got, you got the Italian passion, you got the French passion. Well, I reckon we all need to book good, good old, you know, um, what was the line? Um, good old um, Yorkshire pudding, British passion, you know, kind of thing. So I sort of go into some kind of Cockney or, or, or kind of accent like that. And if I was in America, I'd come out going, you got the Italian passion, you got the French passion. I reckon what we all need is a bit of red, white and blue American apple pie passion. You know, you've got to, be, you've got to adopt the local the local accent. You've definitely got these. See, you and I share the same Italian eyebrows, so you definitely, uh, you definitely qualify as Italian. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the other, you, you mentioned a couple of words, I think quite by accident, but um, it's ironic that you should mention them. You, you know, you talk about the growth of the, the business 
and the popularity of it, people chasing out the door asking you to, to, to book uh, through them. You mentioned the words wildfire. So let's take us back to 2019 and, and you know, the catastrophic fires that, that swept uh, through Australia, particularly New South Wales. Um, and, and the physical threat of life and all that that did to disrupt your life. We'll talk about the other challenges of, you know, your young life where you were being moved around a lot, your parents separating, 9-11, the financial crisis of 08-09, and now, of course, COVID-19. And all those challenges that, you know, many of the people listening to this uh, podcast, Daryl, have never experienced. Um, but let's just talk a little bit about what happened last year and some of the challenges of that presented to you and your fellow Australians? Look, the, 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 um, it was, like I suppose, a tale of, of two uh, worlds in the sense that if you were living in the city of Sydney, you knew that something was going on um, at the outer areas of what is, of course, the greater area of Sydney. It's very large. Uh, but you knew something was going out there because of the television images, of course. Um, but the smoke just enveloped the city. And it was quite astonishing. You'd drive along, you get in your car and you go, wow, I, I, <laughs> there's smoke everywhere, you know. And even when you look out the window, um, there was just smoke and you could always smell it. There was always the smell of burning wood. Um, and it, 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 when you're, if anybody's been to Sydney, you know it is just a simply gorgeous, wonderful city with lots of water, harbour views everywhere. And a lot of the time, those views were skewered through simple, from, you know, foggy, um, of smoke, and um, but you were you were sheltered and unless you were living in those regional areas or the areas out, outskirts, um, you were sheltered from it all. Um, you, the the outer suburbs were often under threat, but we never lost an actual suburb. We lost we lost little towns very uh, close to the the outskirts of the outer area of Sydney, which was uh, obviously a relief to everybody. Um, but it's a terrible thing, you know, the human life and the loss of property. And you'd read about it in the evening, uh, you know, you see it on the television or you read about the newspaper or on the, on the internet and, and you realise there's just all this incredible pain going on and uh, uh, not far from you, but you are somewhat, um, you know, you're protected. You're, you're, I mean, I'm, I live, I'm literally, I, li I can see the Sydney Harbour from my, my window. So I'm, I'm so close to the Opera House. I'm, I'm directly across from, from um, you know, that, that whole downtown Sydney and the, and the Opera House. So I, I, I'm um, very lucky to, to live in a spectacular part of Sydney, a long way from the raging fires, really. Um, but, of course, the big picture of things, very close. But so, look, it was one of those things you, you're just hoping like crazy that the weather was going to turn because it was just endless, great, hot, windy weather just fueling it every day and you just think, Wait, can, can't, what happened to the days where we used to get, yeah, good weather, but then the downpour would come, you know, you know, to make up for it. Because so, Sydney, even though it has huge stretches of dry, wonderful days, when it does rain, it rains, it rains with a vengeance. It can, you know, three days of unbelievable torrential rain. Um, but it just wasn't coming and it was tremendously uh, uh, worrying until, of course, the rains did eventually come. And I guess you could say that Sydney was saved because of the great um, fire burning in the in the, the years previously, you know, the fire breaks. And it's a very technical and sophisticated um, um uh, program that goes on with fire burning, which is exactly for what happened, which was, um, you know, uh, a major fire, which will come through. And if you've done your job properly, you would hit fire breaks and then, then hopefully just stop because there's the, the next bit of forest has already been burned, therefore no fuel. Um, 
but to, that, that, that it's a massive country, massive area, and there's lots of areas which, of course, just you you weren't able to do that, and that's what the uh, fueled this the ferociousness of the fires, and and it affected everyone in in many ways. Um, I don't think it affected the events industry as such. That what I was saying. I mean, all the events were still really happening in the cities, and you could still fly. I remember coming back from Melbourne one day, looking out the window, and we were about half an hour out from landing in Sydney. I thought, wow, that's a really strange cloud. That's a really thick, strange cloud. It's kind of got a weird kind of colour to it. And then as we turned around, I realised, oh, that's not a cloud. Oh, oh, that's the smoke. And it was it was so thick on one side of a mountain range and nothing on the other side. So it, it looked like a cloud. And it and then it was just a huge blanket that covered the whole city. And and I looked ahead and I couldn't see even you know Center Point Tower sticking out through the clouds, which is our highest um, point there, and uh, in the city. And, and and we had to come through the smoke to land. It was like coming through clouds. And so that we, we all dawned on us just how serious this thing was. Um, pretty scary time. I um. I've already mentioned, Daryl, you know, growing up as a child, moving around, your parents separating, 9-11, obviously a significant event for lots of reasons. The 2008-2009 crisis, you know, the, the time at which you set up Love Grove Entertainment, you know, many people would, you know, be easily forgiven for criticising you for starting a business in the middle of a, cri- a financial crisis. And there's a lot of people at the moment who are um, either have lost their way a little bit or are thinking about starting a business or a, a new venture in their life and are finding it easy to make the excuses not to do that because of what's going on. What do you say to people in relation to disruption? Again, something we talked about before we started today uh, about this constant sense um, and, and this feeling of disruption, probably more so now than ever. But what do you say to the people who are really struggling to kind of overcome and move forward from wherever it is they are in their life or business right now. Yeah, okay, and that's a big one because, look, at the end of the day, hindsight says I probably shouldn't shouldn't have um, set up because I had a really 18 months of lots of marketing and putting it out there to a lot of people who said, that looks really good, Daryl. As soon as the events industry picks up, hopefully I'll, I'll hire one of your acts. And I had that for 18 months, you know, and with not a lot of events and events we were going to, there, there were so many uh, entertainment uh, act competi- uh, which were competition to me and they're vying for it as well and so we're throwing like crazy all this produce at the market and the market says whoa guys it's all very well they're fantastic products but which is just such a reduction in the amount of demand for them at the moment uh and so some acts did really well um for instance just the band the typical band it comes in plays top 40 hits they still kept on going. People went, you know what, we'll just get a band. Because mine, mine is, a, my, my, the acts I supply are very much the wealth actor acts. They're, they're opera singers or they're musical theatre stars or they're, um, you know, people come in with a special choreographed kind of setup where you're going to need a stage, you're going to need some lights, you're going to need to spend a bit of extra money. Um, it is going to transform your event. It's going to make people stop and go, oh, where did they find these guys from? That's that's the kind of act we had. But people said, you know what, look, let's just get a DJ or we'll just get DJs and bands did very well during that time. The Wow Factor acts were, were struggled tremendously. But, of course, the market eventually did come back. And and the next thing is, um, you know, oh, it's having a bit, few better years now and whatever. And, um, look, there are going to be definitely some, some of your listeners out there who, who are ready to launch a product and it's been in your heart, you're passionate about it. And if, if the market's not there, yep, 
you're going to find that you're going to be disappointed because it doesn't matter how great and shiny your product is. Now, you have to really make that decision yourself. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, just launch it anyway because there's never a right time in a wrong time. And that is advice you get a lot of the time. But the point is really is that if you know in your heart of hearts that what you're offering and you know that your demographic, that the kind of your target market, the people that Prob- the, the people who have problems which need solving, you know, it, you if they're really not there right now, then maybe I'm not going to tell you to go and launch it anyway because it really could be a bad time when you look back in three or four years' time. But we didn't know, and, and, and timing is, is at the end of the day, it, it is half of the, the thing. If, we, if we'd launched the three waiters at the time of the GFC, uh, well, it would be a, it would be successful, act, but it wouldn't be a world beater. You know, it, 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 we didn't know that 11 years ahead of us was going to be unparalleled economic growth with no world crises until 9-11, you know, and it was going to be an extraordinary time of, of endless growth of the great Western nations. And they weren't having events like crazy and they were throwing money at events and they were trying to outdo their, their events against their competitors. And I just happened to have the product that everybody wanted. It was one of those amazing situations something that will probably never happen again in the next few years but it could i'll never say it didn't happen again for another act or you know um there will come a time when it'll be amazing again really amazing for some kind of act that captures the imagination of the world at a time when there's years ahead of of continual um action and demand for that product I guess in, in every sphere, you know, there's some products do very well in crises, um, um, some services and some products that can sell very well. Um, um, but if you, I guess it is a time to reflect and really think of the next six to 12 months. Is your market going to be there? Um, I know, for instance, in the events industry right now, I, 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 we don't even, we're not even trying because there are no events. <laughs> it's it's fine. You can be a caterer. You can be a supplier of AV equipment. You can be uh, an odor of events. What does it matter if you're not allowed to put on events and no one's ha- allowed to hold an event? You know, there's just going to be zero demand. So, you know, you flooding the market with all advertising and pick us, pick us as your, as your entertainer or your caterer or your AV. That's all very well. Um, and hopefully you're going to, once things start to move, which in Australia looks like it'll be the next month or two, um, then, you know, hopefully you'll be at the front of mind for people when they're doing it. And that's probably the idea. But the last two months you would have wasted your time. Uh, mm-hmm. And that might be for some of your listeners who are about to launch a product or a service um, is to ask that question. Is it the time to actually launch it? Actually, in the next six, 12 months, and what I'm hearing in the United States and the UK especially is, is the tremendous impact it's had on the economies. And, um, you know, we're going to go in recession. And, and, and even Australia, we've had 30, uh, what is it, 30 years now of, of um, we've never gone and had a recession. We've never had a recession in 30 years or 30 quarters or something. I can't remember what it is, but we've got the record in the Western nation and we're going to have it. We're going to have our first recession. And obviously UK is obviously United States is, and recessions are not good. That really means that there's not money in, in the circulation like there was before. There's not a lot of discretionary spending going on and it's a slow climb before money starts to really move again and banks start to lend again. And there's, and all of, you know, Sandra better than me, what it takes for an economy to, to take off again. So look, uh, I don't have any I, uh, high hopes for the bigger picture of my industry. I think it's going to be two years before we get to some kind of feeling that oh, it's happening again. You know, so I have to get my head around that. I have to think about other things I'm going to do. Um, 
and not invest too much in the marketing and advertising until I have a really good idea that they're that people are calling out for it again. Like people are saying, you know, hey, let's get it. Let's, we've been so austere for years, you know, and let's put on an event and let's go big, you know. That's when, if people are ready to go big, that's where I come in. But that's not going to happen for a while in my my events industry area. Yeah. So I, I should jump in and, uh, and just help people. There's a lot of people listening will have no idea what you talk about when you speak of the three tenors. So let's just tell people what they are, because they were back in the 90s, you say, uh, let, me, let me get this right, Placida Domingo, Luciano Pavarotti, and Jose oh, Carrera. Right? Yes, that's it. Yeah. And um, they're yeah, huge, absolutely huge. They, 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 they um, were the biggest kind of opera stars of their time. And the eve of the 92, was it World Cup in Barcelona or in Spain? Um, um, they were brought together by an idea to say, listen, let's get the three biggest tenors in to do a big concert in Barcelona on the eve of the World Cup. And they filmed it, and, of course, it went ballistic. The whole world went, oh, my God, the three biggest tenors in the world. And it's Pavarotti's there and Domingo and her career. And, of course, everyone just went went, went uh, wild about it. And the next thing is they're, they're an act, and they're putting albums out, and they're touring the world. And Yeah. But one one thing I'm very interested in is that opera, with great respect to it, is not is not a very popular genre, and yet you managed to take something that wasn't popular and make it really popular in a corporate setting. So um, was that just a, the fact that it was opera's right for that kind of setting? Was it just so different it became popular? What was it about the three waiters really that made it so successful? If you even know? Yeah, a good question. I think there's two things. Um, uh, was that that the three tenors had made opera cool again. There was what was called crossover at the time, where even the three tenors were singing songs from West Side Story. Uh, and, and um, you know, they were singing popular songs, but with their, te- with their operatic voices. So that, that crossover thing was starting to happen, that thing, whoa, heaven, who Pavarotti sing a song like that before kind of thing. And um, and then, uh, so, so that was big. That was a big cultural thing which was happening in a pop culture. Thing. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have got that that um, relatability, that kind of connection. Secondly, it was funny as as hell. We really made it funny. So when you've got these Italian and the French character and then the local character, um, the dialogue was incredibly funny. The fact that it was a hoax, no one had kind of done that before, you know, in that way. We, we fooled everybody that we were real waiters before we launched and took over the event. And we did hijack the event. You know, we had to talk to the venue owners that this is not an act that you've seen before. We literally will take over. We'll tell you all about it now, how it's going to work. So you're not taken by surprise, but we need, once we're on, we need you to stop serving and we need to own that floor for the next 25 minutes. And, and they would do that, you know, cause, and the word got out. It was a few problems early on, um, but they would do that. And in 25, and said, we're going to finish with a solo meal, you know, it's now or never. And once we've done that, you can come back in and, and take the plates away or serve the drinks again. But just give us the room for 25 minutes and and it, and it will be magic. And it was magic, of course. And, and we, you know, we actually ended up performing for the three tenors themselves, too, in 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was after their last concert they ever did uh, in Bath. And um, the, the guy who put it on was a Malaysian entrepreneur. And he, only a month before, had just won the, Interna- the International Entrepreneur of the Year Awards in Monte Carlo, which the three, wa- three waiters were performing at. And, the, and as the guys were flying back the next day, they were on the same flight as him flying back to London. And he saw the three guys on the plane and he went up to them and went, you guys, last night, I went, oh, my gosh. 
what an amazing show. You blew us all away. Um, listen, I'm putting on the three tenors in a month's time in Bath. You know, it's going to be a big outdoor, typical. You know, you've seen some of them already. Big, we're expecting about 10,000 people. And um, afterwards, I'm setting up this tent behind the stage for a VIP supper, post-show post supper. There's going to be a 200 people in attendance, the three tenors included. And I haven't thought of the entertainment. But now I've got the idea. How do you go? Can you guys do your three waiter show for the three tenors? <laughs> and um, and we, I remember Mark and I were in Sydney and we got the call and we thought there was a joke. We weren't very impressed. We thought, well, that's not even funny. And they said, settle down, mate. It's happening. What? We couldn't believe it. And so we, so we obviously put our three best boys from the England team on it. And and it was a magnificent night. It was. I was in Sydney. I couldn't be there for it. And I was speaking to someone at the after show party. And when we did our version of Nissan Dorma, and it's the greatest greatest story really from our thing is that the Pavarotti, Carreras, and Domingo actually stood up and led a standing ovation. Oh wow! Oh, yeah. we've, got, we've got a picture. Of them. I've got a picture of them standing up clapping, and and then afterwards the three guys met there, and there's a picture of the six of them, you know, our three and those three. It, it was just a, a most, you know, we never thought in a million years that our our inspiration would one day give us a standing ovation. It was just magic, absolute magic. I think. Now, um, we don't have very much time left. There's a couple of quick things I want to squeeze in. One is obviously you now speak all around the world, Daryl, as well. Let's let's not uh, have people believe you're simply a, a great singer. Although I, I am going to slightly put you on the spot and you can say no to me if you like. But we've had a couple of guests on this podcast over the last nearly two years now, one of whom was, a, was a, an orchestra conductor who played the piano live on the podcast. Uh, and, and I'm kind of hoping that you, while I'm asking you the next question, you might kind of do a secret vocal warm up and just give us a, you know, a couple of bars of something um, because we've never had anyone sing on the podcast. So I, I want to talk to you about the fact you are very close to finishing your, your first book, yeah. uh, which we'll talk about. Um, and obviously you speak about success all around the world. What, what took you from singing, uh, which obviously is your great passion, your, your great talent to, to speaking about success? Well, I, I spoke because um, when I would tell people the story, uh, people wanted to know, especially at having a few drinks at a bar uh, afterwards, after a show, people said, what, who came up with that idea we just saw? That's amazing. And and my mates would, I'd be sitting with, would say, oh, well, Daryl, Daryl's a co-creator. He's, he's one of the guys who put it together. And and I, I would tell the story, right? And um, and and people's, and, and usually usually my the, the feedback was, you have to, you have to write a book. You have to you have to tell people that story. People want to hear that story. And um, it was, if we had a bit longer, I, I would tell a story when I was in Turnbury one night in Scotland at an inter, at a big um, international insurance comp, uh, conference. And the guy who booked us, who came back and wanted to know how how on earth it all came together, and I told him the story over about four forty five minutes. And basically, he said at the end of it, he said, "Mate, I have just flown in three big, huge speakers from overseas. And they spoke today, one spoke yesterday, and one and, and one guy I did the opening thing." What the story you just told me in the last 45 minutes, that that's the most one of the most inspirational stories I've ever heard. You need to go and become a speaker. And you need to tell that story because that's what we want to hear. We want to hear those kinds of stories. I never thought much more of it, and, and I didn't sell out of the show until another six years later. But in the back of my mind, I thought I'm, I, I should think about that. So that's why I've done it. And finally got my act together. I've been lazy with the book. I just sort of think, oh, gosh, you know, I, I've got too much honor. But this this is the first – about five months ago, I got serious and started uh, writing the book. And I've just actually recorded a CD, too, during the middle of COVID. So um, um, be busy. And, um, but I'm looking forward to the book coming out a little bit later this year. I think it's going to take people through 
a, a ride which which says, look, there aren't, you know, it's just incredibly um, tough, but also really rewarding to take risks and um, go out there and just have a go, um, because that's what I did. And, there, and there, how it really went from singing to business was, as I say, Sandra, as the three waiters blew up in our face, and I had to, I, I came to a crossroads, and I thought, well, am I an actor? Am I still an actor, or do I actually follow this thing that we had no idea was going to be so big? And and I followed it, and I had to give up my acting. I haven't been in a show for over twenty two years, twenty three years, um, and so I, I did that. And yeah, I'm glad I did it. And became a businessman, and um, I've I've haven't regretted uh, doing that ever since. Well done. Two. Uh, well, first of all, Daryl. Uh, here's my promise to you. As soon as that book is published, put me down for a copy and we will offer it as a prize to people listening on this show that like or share uh, this podcast. And um, also, we'll definitely get a copy of that CD as well and uh, we'll, we'll promote you. So um, final quick couple of questions. Number one, how do people find out more about you? So we've got Lovegrove Entertainment. Um, yep. So tell us, if we were looking for Daryl Lovegrove, where would we find you? Okay, DarylLovegrove.com. <laughs> And that's D-A-R-R-Y-L-L-O-V-E-G-R-O-V-E. So Daryl is D-A-R-R-Y-L. Lovegrove, as it sounds, DarylLovegrove.com. And that, that, that tells you all about my, my, my services as a keynote speaker and a, as an MC. Uh, and Lovegrove Entertainment will take you to all of my products that I have to offer the events industry. Yeah, that's how I do it. Okay, great. And final question. Uh, the the only one that is constant amongst all of our guests, uh, consistent to, to all of those people we talk to, uh, and that is quite simple. If you were talking now to a younger version of Daryl Lovegrove, uh, having dealt with all the challenges you've had and all the successes you've enjoyed, but that person said to you, Daryl or Dad, let's say, um, if you could drill down all of that amazing knowledge that you've got and put it in one sentence for me to help me kind of find my way in life, what would that piece of advice be, that pearl of wisdom? If you want to avoid ever feeling that your life is falling into a period of mediocrity, then you just have to follow your dreams. You have to have a go and don't say no, don't take no for an answer. That's the sentence I would think of at the top of my head. Um, it's not a dress rehearsal. We have to do these things. We have to take the risks. And look, I've had some failures along the way. I, I really have. Um, but I'm lucky to say that in my case, I've been lucky enough that the successes outweigh the failures. But the failures you'll learn from tremendously. And uh, I haven't. And the, the the journey, they say, is far more interesting and important than the, than the destination. And that's certainly my story. I've loved it. Just about every minute of it, um, and yeah, there's been some real challenges along the way, which have tested me tremendously. But as long as we learn, it's what my book's going to be about is about resilience, is mainly, uh, you know, have your purpose. What is your why in the world? You, you've got to get your establish your purpose. Once you've done that, you have to take action. You have to take action, create momentum. Then, if you can avoid the curveballs that are going to be thrown at you along the way, if you have that ability to. Um, you know, really be resilient, bounce back and get out of bed on Monday morning, not letting what happened in the past week get you down and keep on going. You just might have what it takes to do what other people just dream about but don't do. You have to give it a go. 
and uh, with everything that you've got because you don't want to reach I, I would have hated the thought of reaching a 90 year old deathbed and thinking I would kind of played it too easy I didn't really take those risks when I had the energy I had the youth I had the the um uh, just the chutzpah to go out and do it you know and um I, I'm pretty happy to say as a as a 50 something year old that um I'm I'm pretty happy with the the choices I made and and the the what I had to show for it. Good for you. You gonna yeah. you gonna sing us a couple of bars just to prove to everyone you can sing? Well, since you put me on the spot, and I don't want anybody any conductor who can have one over me. Um, all right, here we go. I uh, hope I'll start in the right key. If I don't end up start on the right key, it can be a bit of a train wreck. So just let me think about this for a minute. Wow, wow. That was, I know, not even a warm-up. One, one of the hardest finishes to a song uh, I, I think it's possible to have. And you, it is, and you it is, Sandra. Do not that try that off. at home, people. Do not try that at home. Fair play. That is absolutely fantastic. What that well that that definitely will be the best finish to a podcast, even if I keep doing this for five more years, Daryl. So um <laughs> thank you very much. It's really good to see you again, my friend. Uh long may you continue to do all the things you're doing so brilliantly well. Hopefully we we come out the other side of this latest uh apocalypse du jour and uh and and we get the opportunity to catch up again in the not too distant future. And we will definitely uh, offer that book and the CD as a, as a prize on the podcast and uh, look forward to seeing you, if not in Sydney, then definitely in the UK at some point. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you take something from it. And uh, thanks, Sandro, for inviting me to speak today. Daryl Lovegrove, what can I say? Thank you so much for joining us on the Sandro Forte podcast. Uh, if you didn't think that was terrific, inspirational, fantastic, and every other adjective I can think of, then you are missing a trick. Each week, we have a new guest joining us to share their own insights into achieving success or indeed overcoming life challenges, just as Daryl's done a few times. So please make sure you subscribe, follow us on social media, Sandro's podcast, don't forget the air, same on all channels. And if you want to email us, hello at sandrospodcast.com, leave those reviews on iTunes, please, very important. And don't forget to tune in this time next week to another fantastic guest. Bye for now.